very warm welcome to the Understanding Users podcast, brought to you by Researchable UX. It's great to have you with me. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be chatting to various digital experts who I've had the pleasure of working with in recent years. They're from various disciplines, including user research, UX design, development, and product management. And they'll even be a digital business owner or two. I'll be talking to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and what advice they may have for others getting into the field. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. In this episode of Understanding Users, I speak with four freelance digital experts who are friends of mine and who I had the great privilege of working with a few years back. We reflect on a particular large-scale UK government transformation project that we all worked on, what we did, how and why we did it, the challenges we faced, and what we learned along the way. To what extent is an organisation ready to hear and then act upon problematic and challenging feedback from users of its services? How do you change long-established and deep-rooted processes within an organisation? Why are collaborative design workshops so powerful to the UX process? What can happen if you don't fully bring senior stakeholders with you on the journey? And why is the UK government's GDS assessment process so important in guiding teams to build digital services the right way? My wonderful, highly experienced guests are Laura Cusack, John Sykes, Ben Watson and Louisa Harper. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Can I just get you to go around? Um, I don't know who the first volunteer is, but just introduce yourself and your role. Okay, so uh, yeah, my name's Louisa, and I was the content designer on the project. Um, I'll go for Ben. Hey, I'm Ben Watson. I'm a user experience practitioner. Uh, on the project, I was, uh, I was an interaction designer. John. Right. Uh, I'm John Sykes. I am currently UX delivery lead with the Financial Conduct Authority, which is a lot of fun, by the way. Um, really, really great organization. Um, I could talk long about that on another episode for you. Um, but on this particular project, I was working as a service designer. Uh, I guess it's over to you, Laura. Yeah, and I'm Laura Cusack, and I was the delivery manager on the project. Fantastic. Thanks, everyone. So we're going to cast our minds back about four, is it five years? It it feels like a long, long time ago. We can't go into too much detail about certain things for obvious reasons about commercial sensitivities and so on. But in terms of the clients, it was a large UK government ministry. Can I say that? I think I can. Let's begin with the the key problem we were trying to solve. Kind of what was what was the problem space? I guess you could say it was a service that that could impact any anyone potentially. So it was it was quite wide ranging. Um, and it was something that could affect any citizen, potentially. Indeed. <laughs> but you could, it, it's also it, it also infected in uh, affected individuals, as well as businesses. Um, and that's why it was so complicated. And I, I, I'd like to think as well, you know, it was we were also trying to help those who are at a very vulnerable point and having to deal with very difficult circumstances and they really needed help. And it's all, yeah, it was, what was interesting about that particular thing, Louise, is, is 
the situation that people were in <clears throat> when they came to this service because they're often in conflict with um, another person who we're also looking after as well. So you've got two vulnerable people potentially um, in conflict and we were trying to help resolve that conflict as amicably and as straightforwardly and legally as possible. While at the same time, you've also got lots of um, stakeholders, um, lobbyist groups from who are representing many of the different interests, which I thought was probably one of the more complex sides of the project in the sense that we had. Um, it's really hard describing this without saying anything, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> keep going, keep going. <laughs> um, no pressure at all. <laughs> Um, we had lobbyist groups from um, all angles. We had stakeholders from within the organization. And everyone was very politicized in this particular project. So trying to balance all of that while at the same time really trying to concentrate on the needs and challenges of the people we're trying to represent was an overwhelming challenge and I thought what I love about this project and why I love you all so much is I think you guys did an amazing job of actually delivering. So, and I guess that's why you brought us together today. And I was going to come on to what challenges we face and you've started to, to touch on that. Um, how did we go about kind of overcoming those challenges? Uh, I, I think for me, I was thinking about this uh, last night. I think the standout moment for me personally was actually when John did the um, workshop where you brought all the sort of competing sides together and got them to sit down with each other and talk to each other, which I didn't feel had ever happened before. or well, not in the same way. Uh, it was an open conversation and you allowed everybody to kind of give their view um, and conclude that actually they're probably not as opposed as they thought they might have been, which was the conclusion of that, of that workshop. I thought it was great. And it's interesting because we've done that many times with um, many different organisations with uh, with a lot of you on the call as well, where we've had um, different what looked like opposing um, opinions and perspectives. And then they come and sit around a table and realise, actually, it's not as um, difficult as we thought. There's more similarities than there are differences and there are overlaps where we can come to an agreement. Um, so, yeah, I think... Collaborative design workshops, which is what we're talking about there, are a super important part of the design process. It allows um, everyone to get around the table, look at the challenges from their own perspectives and also understand the perspective of others and, and find that common ground, which makes for a great solution. Now, I don't think everyone is always going to be super happy, um, but you get to a point where everyone's needs are met, usually. So I think that's one of the things that came out of that piece. I also think it was useful for the people from the government department to see that happening. They were very scared, weren't they? They were very scared about the idea of getting everybody in the room at the same time. And you know what? I've done that workshop so many times and always the same pattern in the sense you've got the um, policy people who are kind of, and the government representatives always very scared about the idea of bringing people together into the same room. Um, largely because I've never seen a workshop like this before, because usually when they talk about a workshop, what they're talking about is a meeting. And uh, this is not a meeting in the normal sense. Everyone's got an activity to do. Um, people are working in small groups, um, which is very different to what a workshop might mean in some of the government um, meetings that you've been to or workshops you've been to before. 
Ben, I think you were going to come yeah, in. Yeah, I think John's largely, I think, covered. Um, yeah, what I was going to say is just seeing people with sort of naturally, obviously, without it's a bit bit sort of abstract without knowing what what the product or you know what the project was about. But people that had uh, basically opposing interests because in any given um, sort of use case, only only you know in this in this sort of dialogue uh, that was being facilitated. Only one party would would likely come out sort of satisfied, and another party would would inherently be disappointed. Uh, however, I think in principle, what we saw in in those design workshops were, regardless of where you uh, where where sort of these these parties uh, sort of interest lie, they they sort of agreed in principle that there was potentially a sort of a, a single, you know, a design. Not not solution, but proposal that that, uh, that tick the box for everyone. So despite the various interests, there there were some sort of common, um, and it didn't feel like compromise either. But basically, the, the, you know, some commonality in terms of what what a um, what a system could um, you know facilitate. And and going back to those workshops, you've talked both of you at length about that. I mean, let's just drill down into the kind of format of them. So how 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 did we organise them? We've talked about bringing different people together, but what was the the format? What made them so kind of successful? And great. So I've got to now remember back four years to a workshop. Um, I'm guessing they probably followed it as, as, as a <laughs> similar format, a similar pattern. Um, in the sense, one of the key parts is bringing the different players together so that they can um, share their experiences, look at the different challenges that we've identified during our discovery process and come together and try to work through potential solutions. And the way we do that is we start off by having the people in the um, workshop start to empathise a little bit with the users. So we have the different users that are at play. We get them to have a think and um, we used to have a process called an empathy map where we get them to think about the different aspects of the journey um, that someone might go through and how they might be thinking or um, feeling during that process and just try to get everyone a little bit more on the side of the person they're designing for. And usually we break them into groups. So on this particular um, example, we had two key users that we're trying to satisfy and um, we mixed people up. So they had, they might be, having to empathize with somebody that they normally saw as an opponent. So that was kind of one of the key movements here, really, is getting people to start thinking about um, the service from somebody else's perspective. And I think that made a big difference. Uh, and then we introduced the, the challenges that came from, that we identified during the discovery process. And fundamentally, we asked people to brainstorm solutions um, and then give some indication of which solutions they think are um, the most likely to deliver a, a good outcome. And then we ask them to storyboard them so we can sort of like see how they might work in the real world. So often you find that ideas that you have in a workshop can be at a conceptual level, don't necessarily land very well when you try to work out how that would really play out. So by storyboarding, it allows people to, what I call earth it, allows people to take that concept that sits in the head and, and see how it would play out in the real world. So um, that's fundamentally the, the principle of the workshop. And from the back of that, we don't end up with probably just one or two ideas. What we found, <laughs> what we found is that um, <laughs> there's lots of ideas that are generated throughout the whole of the day. And we can sort of like cherry pick those and work through and 
a bit like weaving a carpet almost. You kind of take a few ideas and you weave them together until you get a service that looks like it will hang together. So it's not necessarily the, the, the ones that are weighted most heavily at the end of the day, but by weighting them, you understand what the kind of key drivers are, motivations for the different players. So, yeah, that's that's kind of how we played it. Is there anything I missed out on that? I feel like it's, it's, it's my space, so I kind of took over, sorry. No, I think that I think that that's a fair reflection. I think for me, I remember thinking uh, that the word used was empathy. Um, I think it helps just to, to understand that actually everyone who was trying to use the service was struggling with an element of it, and actually the element they were struggling with it was with wasn't that dissimilar. So it was that they couldn't understand it. They didn't understand the legal ramifications of something. They didn't know who to go to for help. It's actually the same for both of those what are seen as opposing users. So then it was maybe a moment of understanding of actually no one's particularly enjoying using this or trying to do it incorrectly. It's actually that they can't understand it, I think. And I think that language thing is really important and, and something I really want Louisa to talk about because I think you know one of the key problems of this service was that communication issue and about yeah. some of the 18th century language. <laughs> I was going to say there was some lovely florid language, wasn't there, that Louisa, you had to work your magic on? Oh, yeah, I will never forget it. <laughs> never. And I still use it as an example of how I had to try and explain why it needed to change and how drastic I actually had to be with uh, my reasoning. Oh, yeah. Um, I have to say that's, I don't think, this is one of the um, sad points for me for this project. Even though that document was approved by the, let's say, the content owners, the SMEs, the stakeholders, um, mentioning, you know, no particular names, and it would have made a lot of lives easier. I don't think it ever got put through. And that, it's a bit of a, not sore spot, but it's sad because it would have made a difference. Sorry, going to cough. I thought you were going to cry. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, there's a lump rising in my throat. My content. What about my content? Um <laughs> Yeah, that I mean, that piece of content that I worked on, I think we all remember that very well. Like, wow, it really says that? It's really that complicated? This is what people have to deal with? This is what both user groups have to deal with? How can anybody understand what's going on? On that note, I was, uh, apropos of that, in the Mary Rose Museum last year, and carved on a cannon, if you can believe this, that was recovered from the Mary Rose was some of the words, obviously I won't say what they are, that were in that document that you're talking about. And that gives you a sense of the archaic language that we were dealing with. And the other thing I remember vividly was going out into Liverpool Street Station with a copy of that and doing some guerrilla research. Actually, I've done something similar last week on, a, on a, a, my current project that I'm working on. But just showing that document that you've been eloquently referring to two passers-by and, the, and they were just completely flummoxed and gobsmacked that anything official would come out from the government so yes <laughs> it was a challenge and then you had building on that i mean it's like working with the content so louisa was really did an amazing job of trying her best to clarify that and make it easy for people to understand and then ben really did a, a really clever piece of work about trying to help people work their way through the language and, and help kind of 
<clears throat> surface the information they would need. I don't know if that's worth talking about here, Ben, because I thought that was incredible piece of work about how you um, helped people identify the key bits they needed to concentrate on and, and kind of cut the crap, basically, so they didn't have to learn lots of stuff that was totally irrelevant. And as I think a few people have touched on, it's, it's kind of hard to, to cast your mind back, like it's almost a lifetime ago, right, for the specifics. But I do, I do recall like a lot of the work that we've that we you know we're all aware of the various touch points, the, the sort of evidences and materials that, that people were exposed to across different channels. And I know that you know I, I recall like a lot of um, you know conscious effort about you know sort of just in time information, appreciating that the, the sort of the the the, the language is a, is a is a fantastic example of this, but how intimidating all this whole process is, and and how you know how um, how stressful it can be. So you know, surfacing you know just in time information across uh, across the digital touch points at least that we were we were looking at. I I, I think I recall working um, part of this guerrilla research as well. I think maybe in the same session. I was definitely um, I think uh, Mike at, at Liverpool Street still, but looking at different um, how the same information could be um, you know produced in like an SMS, for example, an email, as well as paper, and how the different delivery mechanisms could, you know, whether things landed, whether people had, uh, there was enough sort of trust uh, in, in in the source of the information. Um, but yeah, I recall, yeah, obviously looking at the, the mechanisms of, of, of how we expose them and the time at which we expose this, uh, the, the, the improved language, let's say, to, uh, to users. Mm. And, and you mentioned there, Ben, delivery. I mean, Laura, from your point of view as the, as the delivery manager, I'm interested to know kind of how how did you liaise with the stakeholders and how was that in terms of communication with what we were learning? And Yeah, I mean, were, I'm not going to say it wasn't challenging because it definitely was. Um, but I think, the, I think the biggest challenge was getting the government policy people, if you want to call them that, to see it differently. I think um, they've the way the organisation set up has actually determined how the service was put together originally rather than by the user and the, who the users are and what they need. It was done by structures within the organisation from however long ago that just don't work anymore um, or don't work very well anymore, I should say. Um, and I think, you know, I think once those people, the kind of champions we had in our team who were policy people started to see actually the way we're doing this doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> That's when it became a lot easier um, but it took a while to get there, being in, set up in teams that were based around that organisational structure. And actually, I think um, we had a kind of uh, some champions, I guess you want to put it that way, on our team who really wanted to understand more about understanding user need. And once they got that and understood, you know, that there, there were other services that impacted this service within their own organisation um, and that there were potential issues in how those two services were working together. Um, once they got that, I think they were really keen to make sure that that changed. So I think that was really a really interesting turning point. Um, I think there was some resistance to it initially, just because it's always been that way. And then there's people coming in saying, have you thought of doing it completely differently? Uh, <laughs> um, but actually, um, I found working with the stakeholders challenging at different points. But I think once we had those policy champions, that was what that made the massive difference. I kind of felt supported. And if we raised a question, it wasn't going to be kind of seen badly. It was seen as actually trying to improve the service. That's really interesting. And in terms of legacy, because obviously 
all of us have moved on now. I'd be interested to know, I don't know if anyone does know, to what extent some of those experiences that the stakeholders went through, they've carried on, you know, sort of adapt, they've changed the way they work longer term as a result. I don't know if anyone knows that. One can but hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think they probably have. Um, whether the rest of the organisation has, I, I don't know. Um, I guess there's always a battle, isn't there, between, you know, a battle is probably the wrong word, but it, it, when an organisation is structured, you know, even with where the buildings are located, right, for the people who are processing stuff manually, it's very difficult to change the whole thing. You know, you, you're just looking at the whole thing as a whole service and a whole organisational restructure. That's, that's, that's difficult. <laughs> so... They might change the way they think about things or how they approach a problem, but whether the organization's ready to take that on, I guess, is a different question. I think what's really interesting is the fact is that that pattern has been pretty much repeated everywhere I've been. I'd like to know whether anyone on this call has actually been somewhere where they've had a different pattern because actually the organization's quite mature digitally and therefore knows what the different roles are and how to work with people and, and comfortable with transformation. Has anyone worked in a, in, in where that pattern's not been evident? I'd be intrigued. You know, are we, are we upping the maturity of um, government? It's a really good question. I think it varies very much department by department. Um... There's only one I can think of off the top of my head easy, and that's GDS. But you would kind of hope for that, wouldn't you? Really? Yeah. And I think, you know, um, I think it depends on the history of the department as well and, like, what kind of thing they're dealing with. Um, you know, some of them have, you know, real kind of operational heavy dependencies that are, that are harder to change than a very policy-led department, for example, I think. And, and on the subject of GDS that you just mentioned, Louisa, as part of the piece of work we were doing there were assessments and we were assessed at kind of each stage I'm interested could we just sort of reflect on on that and what we had to do how we assessed and what did we have to kind of show and if we can cast our minds back I think in particular of that room which you know in pre-covid days we're able to get lots of bits of paper up on the wall um which actually worked really well I thought is it are we allowed to mention that obviously we were we were the first uh, the first team as far as i'm aware to go through the, the what are now the current the current standards so at the time they were very much in uh in consideration but it was another sort of nine months or so before they actually came into effect and as i as i understand it we were the first team to move from the was it the 18 point standard to to the to the current can we say that does that give it away i don't think it does i don't know i mean was it ever published anyway yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i don't think it was right no for for people who aren't familiar, for listeners who aren't familiar with GDS and the assessment process, could someone just really quickly just give a recap of, of the service standard and how, how, how this is done? I mean, I could try and put it across in a succinct way and that the service standard is they are ways that GDS will assess services to make sure basically they're fit for purpose and they've done all the things that a department needs to do to make sure it works for the users. And if they're not, I mean, generally, you know, they, I always think of the term pass and fail, but they changed it to something else because it was considered soul crushing. Um, but if a service was not approved to move on to the next delivery phase, you know, they would have to, GDS would identify which are the service standards that they failed in, I use the word again, and they would have to improve and then come back and go through another assessment. 
but it's basically to maintain quality in government services. Could have just said that, really, couldn't I? <laughs> and it, it used to be that CDDO would um, be an external uh, judge, effectively, of how well you, you'd met your, those standards. So CDDO, Central Digital and Data Office, um, they were responsible for administering the service assessments, but um, recently that's all changed. So now the different departments will be running their own um, internal assessments. So there is no longer any external measure of whether you've met those assessments. It's very much a, a localised, which is a shame, I think, honestly. Um, I, I think it was something that we never looked forward to, but it was always very, very useful and, and gave you that push. And also, to be honest, being working in UX, it gave us a stick because we often knew what was necessary to pass your assessment and everyone was trying to cut corners and you could say, well, you can do that if you want to, but you won't pass your assessment. It's up to you. And, you know, whereas now, I'm, with internal assessments, I, I get the sense that maybe the strictness isn't there, that it, and it's not as robust perhaps it, when it was run by CDO. I could be wrong. I haven't been through one yet, but... Um... I think it's probably more open to internal politics, maybe, put it that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd agree. I've been through one, actually. Have you? Um, oh. And yes, and I thought it was very strange. And I mean, we passed. The difference for me is that it seemed actually, yes, more political and almost unfavorable if someone doesn't like your service or if someone doesn't really believe in it or two departments have competing interests goes all the way up to the minister what they're meant to deliver it seems like it's very easy for an assessment to be tactical and for the people on the board to be tactically placed I felt a sense of security with the GDS assessment I knew that I was going to be held up to a particular standard and where I failed was actually a good thing because they were just trying to make sure we'd done the best job possible and Casting our minds back though to our specific for the service we're talking about. I mean, my memory is it was it was an intense, it was an all day pretty much. It was intense. It took us a while, quite a long while, to get ready for it. We had most of the team there. We had a bunch of assessors. We we're in a room. Um, it was it was kind of not quite school exam style, but it was pretty intense, wasn't it? And they were asking some pretty probing questions, which is good to, to the points that you've just been making about. Oh, we did have a very very lovely war room there, didn't we? I mean, I think. I got a bit arsy wanting to make sure everything was square and at the right level. And I was like, what are you doing, John? <laughs> Aesthetic design. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely came out. But no, I mean, every single artifact we produced was all around the wall, which allowed us to then answer every question by just taking the team over to a part of the wall and take them through our work that we'd done. We didn't have to kind of pretend we did something or try and describe it. It was there. Our artifacts were there. They were being used exactly how we were using them in the session. Um, it was it was grueling, um, but the questions were appropriate. Um, the questions were trying to get to the crux of what we the design decisions we'd made along the way and why we'd made them. Um, and that's kind of what you expect, I guess. No, I, I, I think... It's a necessary, um, almost like a ceremony you have to go through, a rite of passage as part of your UX life, isn't it? It's like, right, oh, you don't look forward to it, but you're always 
pleased you've been through it and you've you know you've been assessed by your peers and you know i don't know how many others have been you know on on those panels themselves and, and been assessing others you know it's um it's a community when we're trying to ensure that as a community our standards are maintained i think that's a really positive thing mm. and covid like with so much else covid threw an interesting kind of angle on this didn't it so obviously the last couple of years all these assessments that we're talking about have been done remotely but when i went through one service assessment a few months back I was very much kind of when we were talking about it as a team and planning, I said, look, let's do this face to face. And we got everyone in. We had the the client stakeholder and other government ministry, the one I'm working with at the moment, into the agency offices. And it was just lovely to be and to have all the artifacts on the wall, exactly like you're saying, John. It was such a breath of fresh air over kind of Zoom calls and remote slide decks and stuff. I, all I was going to say is how much I hated doing it on Zoom. I did a, you know, a few on Zoom. And basically, you just have to send over a, a deck. And then ask people to jump to certain pages, and it's just not pleasant in the same way. And you can't, you're having to get people to zoom in and have Miro boards all over the place and get people to move. It's just not a fun experience for me. And I know that CDDO moved towards that as their default going forward, but I much preferred the face to face. Completely. Yeah, I was just going to say about the, you know, for me, the, the standards are really placing users like. Uh, you know, people that need the service at the forefront, and it's something that that is often needed. Um, you know, we've surely we've all worked in uh, in in. In fact, we were we were talking before about the 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 nature of the the organisation, the structure of the organisation, how it's you know how the power of you know seeing users, people you know that are actually utilising these um, you know the services that they're struggling. Um, it, the power of you know observation and 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 placing using these there. So for me, the stand is really just about keeping that at, at the absolute forefront. Having an independent uh, panel that can basically say whether or not these services can move forward was very powerful. I think what, what we've seen is you know as they've moved internally, it's just we've you know evidently all seen other sort of politics can get in the way and and allow things to go through it even if user you know the the attention to the needs of users have, have maybe slipped or not been present i think one of the key things really with the standards is that if certainly in the assessment that we went through if if there's there's a high you know a high degree of scrutiny around how how many users you know, not necessarily how many users but but how you know how well we understood the the needs of our users and we need to demonstrate um you know the volumes of people we spoke to the 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 ways in which we've uh, we've sort of tried to understand the needs of users the the sort of artifacts we've produced to to gain insight and to iterate sort of you know design uh, sort of potential solutions to <clears throat> to some of the problems that we've we've um we've identified it's really hard to show like a, a huge body of work in in like a couple of hours i've been on a i've been on an assessment where i spent nine months on a, on a particular phase and i get two hours to speak to to speak to a room but you know and, and you've got to try and disseminate all of that information into a, into a nice you know and basically in person you're able to you have a wealth of artifacts around you and, and have things to hand and talk at a high level and wait for those probing questions and 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 hopefully deal with them um, but yeah, I find that the biggest challenge is, is trying to get like a huge body of work distilled into something. Um, you know, it could be that the, the assessors are hearing about the service for the first time that day and they're, they're actually like mentally trying to process what this is even for. And uh, yeah. I agree. I, I think as well, I, I remember, uh, Mike, you played some um, audio clips of some of the users talking about how trying to use the service has made them feel and. I think that was really powerful because I, I 
think that there's probably people in that room who had never who who had worked in that area for a long time who'd never heard that before um or never had the opportunity to um so yeah i think you know bring it making the heart the user the heart of it was really important but i think that i re- i remember the room just being silent afterwards thinking okay do need to do something about this then <laughs> was kind of the message yeah so for me there's one artifact in particular um some of the john produced um we had yeah i forget the size of it but it was huge it was <laughs> like a, a couple of meters across by like a meter down or, or so like a storyboard really really um uh really highlighting you know anyone that walked into a room and was interested we, we had an artifact to point to again i think that's that that is lost in, in the way that we're, most of us are working these days. We don't have something we can point to and walk people through. But for me, that was a, an extremely powerful um, sort of artifact in, in the sense that we, people got it, right? People, people could, we could align um, understandings, uh, you know, the understanding of, because we had something physical, physical, tangible to point to, and people could really, um, you know, synchronize with, with what they were talking about. And I, I, I remember at the time, actually, John, when you were putting that together, was it, was it Blender? If I, if I remember that correctly, um, the, like no, no, it wasn't Blender. It was um, oh, I can't remember. I've got I've used a few in in, in. Um, but yeah, it was a three D package, wasn't it? That allowed me to move characters into certain positions, drop in backdrops. Um, but the key thing there was tr- it was a storyboard that tried to empathise with each of the different. Um, users that were that each of them got their own problems and they're coming together and you know this service had to help them solve those problems um, and it, what I thought it did well was tell that story show you how a vision of how that would work in the future and also the propositions that underpin that so you could look at any proposition and and to like have a look and say okay that's that design hypothesis that we're testing there and then once that was tested, and I loved it because basically what was happening was we had a pincer movement. So, um, you know, Ben and Mike were together you know, working at, with the users and testing um, how the hypothesis would work with the users, while at the same time you had myself working with the stakeholders and, and the <clears throat> particularly the lobbyists and legal I'm really working with them and trying to work out how that was going to work. And then we'd come together and they would rebuild the storyboard based on our learnings. And so it's always kind of like a living document of um, where we saw the vision at the moment. And it was always that coming together from the user's perspective and the stakeholder perspective, and then coming back and say, okay, these are the problems. How are we going to fix this team? Um, so yeah, I, 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 it's a, it's an artifact that I really have placed central into my practice going forward. I mean, that was the first time I'd done it. And I, I think I think it was so valuable on that project that I've tried to replicate it wherever I go. Um, but it is quite, it, takes a, it took me about three or four days really to create the first version of it. So it's quite a, a slow process. I need to probably get my processes faster, but um, yeah. I, I, I recall you were working on that like over the weekend. I remember at the time being really skeptical about like the value of having 3D rendered characters to, to drive something home but like i i can't basically i can't state uh you know how strongly like that to me as you say we we didn't i don't think the storyboard was ever shown to users but certainly um lobbyists you know stakeholders policy makers they they were looking at the same thing and i think the the i think empathy is really like the key thing that even though these people clearly like 3d renders how how it 
how it placed use, you know, basically presented user needs um, in a very real way to people that maybe, I don't know, in, in, in my opinion, hadn't really considered those uh, in earnest before. Um, the, the package, like having something that someone could visually see and see the, you know, this storyboard was so powerful. Oh, while we're uh, saying nice things about each of us, um, I actually was really impressed, Ben, by your particular, I've never seen it before. I don't know if it was the first time you've done it, but you built up a prototyping solution that allowed us to see every single iteration that had ever happened before. So, and also we could augment that with the stuff that's coming from Mike's sessions and um, Louise's content sessions so that we could actually say why the design decision was made. So we, it was a tool that allowed you to go back to any version of the prototype and then sort of like go, for, it was almost like a time machine. And you could then sort of like look at the design decisions that were made along the way. It was amazing. And I hope that it's something that's you know been adopted elsewhere because I just thought that was incredible. So it's something that I've used. So I, I created something that can plug into the the the, the government's uh, the GDS prototype kit that can can allow time. It's something I've used uh, again and again. Uh, not not all the time. I think you have to because there is no overhead that, that's involved. But the key thing to mention the the real reason for that is again like for instances like assessments where someone says this what, what what what's what's the reason for this you have something we you know you can instantly say um let me just quickly open up this page yeah this has had x amount of iterations here's why here's like here's potentially even i think with ours mike i think we even put audio clips um you know we had we we had sort of time uh you know timestamps from from the interview process and and we had them connected to our you know google drive and and that sort of thing you can you could get like a some sound bites and some a small body of evidence or something to at least give someone the confidence that this wasn't just plucked out the air. Um, but yeah, the idea was to show obviously prototypes are obviously more often than not in a multidisciplinary team, like the owned by a, by an interaction design. It's usually that person's like that's just their sort of body of work. But I think what we tried to do is tie you know all of our work in into a single touch point rather than have it scattered about. We've talked a lot about various aspects of this. I guess sort of reflecting overall, I'm interested to know what people's key takeaways are. And I guess primarily by that, I mean, what would you have done differently? I don't say this very often, if ever, but actually I think everybody done such an exceptional job and we worked so well together as a team. I wouldn't touch a thing. I really, really wouldn't. I've, I can't fault any of it within the team. <laughs> that's lovely, Louisa. You can come again. <laughs> I think that's the big learning is the fact that maybe we needed to take some of the internal stakeholders with us more so that actually they saw the value of what we're doing. I think it was probably one of the best projects I've worked on for the people I've worked with, the learning I gathered while doing it, and also the product that we designed. And yet it didn't actually go out because we didn't take the senior stakeholders with us enough for them to see the value. I think there's also there's some common components that weren't ready potentially, but um, I really feel that maybe that's where I let the side down by not reaching out regularly enough with some of the kind of senior stakeholders that maybe didn't see the value in some of the um, solutions that we came up with. I, th I think that's a bit harsh on yourself. <laughs> yeah. I think um, for me, um, you know, Seconding what Louisa said, I, I when I think of a great team, I think of of, of this team. It was a really good team, and when I mean team, I don't just mean the kind of you know um, digital people. I mean the policy people we we're working with as well were great. Um, and I I think that yes, we probably 
there are some stakeholders we probably could have worked better with. But I think my learning, and I think something I took away from it, is the organisation has to be kind of very ready to take on some of the maybe more difficult comments that come from the users. Um, and if they've never been exposed to it before, it might be quite jarring. I'll put it like that. <laughs> Got bogged down, didn't it, politically? Yeah. But the, and again, I keep coming back there. That's where we should have. I, I, I think that's where. I think it was bigger than us, John. Possibly, possibly. A few of us that kind of, you know, were trying to link in with us, some of the senior stakeholders, and we only we didn't see them often enough is a problem. And I, 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 so they didn't see the value of what we're doing. I think you're right in the sense that it wasn't just ours. I think the whole program was struggling politically, not just our particular project. But yeah, definitely. I keep thinking about, you know where I would have tried to influence. And I think that is one of the key roles <laughs> I like to pick up. And is it a key role of a service designer? I don't know, maybe a product manager, but definitely that influencing um, piece is critical. And that's the bit that we probably didn't win on. So to follow on from that point then, John, kind of final question to all of you, what advice would you give to another digital team embarking on a, a similar project? For me, it's the very short, simple saying, do what is right, not what is easy. I oh, always I like believe that. do what's right, no matter how difficult it is. If it's what's best for the users, if you really believe in what you're doing, build it and they will come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think that's right. Uh, I think understanding those sort of political, if you want to call it that, uh, challenges is, is useful. It doesn't mean you don't do the right thing. So it doesn't stop you doing the right thing, but I think having an understanding of where you might hit up against things so you can pre prepare for that or preempt it is a useful thing. I think some of that was a news to some of us and made it harder. What I believe is, is, is the right thing to be doing is, is to be championing user needs. Uh, looking at the external users when you're part of the, the, the internal team, the part of the team that can influence and, and just keep fighting for those, those people who, who don't get a seat at the table. And for me, I think it's... It, <laughs> um, for me, I think it's about getting the foundations right in the first place. It's about getting the project set up. So that means getting the senior responsible officers in the room and getting them aligned on what it is they think you're doing and um, I think that gives you the the cover that you need for all the pieces of work and, and then taking them with you and showing them how what you're doing is meeting what they set out as your goal. And if the goal changes along the way, that's perfectly fine. Um, but they're with you on that journey. And I think that's, I say, that's the thing that I think I missed on this piece. And I've learned from that and I do it every other project. I, I start off with a kickoff session and I get all the senior responsible officers in the room and I say like, okay, guys, what's, what's the problem you think we're fixing here? What do you think we're trying to solve? What do you think success looks like? What, what needs to happen? What must happen for you to consider this project a success? And just those three simple questions starts the project off in the right way and helps kind of clarify what everyone thinks is design goals. And the, the reason you do that is because often you've got multiple um, stakeholders or, or senior, you've got probably several senior, senior responsible officers and they've all got different, slightly different interpretations of what you're doing. So that, you know, you're never going to do something that takes all those boxes where if you can actually get everyone to align right from the beginning, this is what we're trying to do. 
then you're off to a better start. And I think I wasn't there at the beginning of this project and didn't do it really very well when I got there. So that was my learning that I've taken forward and I, every other project now, it's, it's a key piece. That's fantastic. On that very inspiring note, um, we'll call this a wrap. Uh, folks, it's been absolutely lovely to chat to you all. Thank you so much indeed for taking the time. Thanks for listening to the Understanding Users podcast. And special thanks to my guests, Laura, John, Ben, and Louisa. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening. And feel free to share this episode more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Links are in the show notes. Join me again next time when I'll be talking to another experienced UX professional and asking them to share their wisdom, tips, and knowledge with me. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.